Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Wasper Chen. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Well, it has finally happened, and it only took the first few days of the new year. Mm. But folks, Tetris has finally been beaten. <gasps> it only took 34 Ooh. years. Like, really beaten. <laughs> Truly well and beaten. And there's a lot of lore around this, in part because we weren't really ever sure it could be beaten or mm. what that would look like. But yep. It has been beaten by a 13-year-old because, of course. Right? Well, yeah, you got to have those reflexes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and that actually does come into play. And we are talking about the original NES Tetris. Mm. Now, as I mentioned, this was previously thought to be an impossible task, in part because the assumption was that Tetris just goes on forever and mm -hmm. ever and ever until you run out of space. And there is some truth to that. So it was thought that you beat the game by crashing it. And they had a name for this. They called it reaching the true kill screen. And <laughs> uh, those are proper noun capitalization of true kill screen. So they call it that because for decades, it was assumed that level 29 was the kill screen. Mm. Now, for context, the longer you play Tetris, if you haven't before, the faster the blocks fall. And so it kind of raises the stakes as you're forced to think in split second movements about where each piece should drop. Now, the speed caps at level 29, which makes it almost impossible to reach the sides. And because of that, the community thought, well, that was the end of the game. Now, in 2011, a gamer named Thor, Thor Ackerland, <laughs> he smashed through the level 29 kill screen with a new technique that involved vibrating his fingers. And that's how he was able to get to this <laughs> mythical level 30. And in part, it's huh. because, you know, the controllers are kind of too slow when you need to get that kind of speed. Yeah. So they've come up with these innovative button smashing <laughs> techniques. And it wasn't until seven years after Thor beat level 29 that someone named Joseph Saley reached 31. And later, mm. he even pushed that record to level 35. Wow. But then in 2021, a player called Cheese, now that's C-H-E-E-Z for uh -huh. those following along, <laughs> Cheese employed a new button smashing strategy called rolling. And it's kind of like, you know, those really complicated combos in a lot of the like 2D side scroller or fighting games where you have to like basically roll your finger across multiple sequences of buttons. Mm. It's kind of like that, but even more nuanced. But once we started getting this rolling technique, others jumped on the trend. And before long, someone named Eric ICX clawed up to level 146. Whoa. Now, that's over five times the original kill screen or what we had assumed. But when you get to level 146, a new challenge presented itself, specifically a glitch that made the color palette dull and hard to read. Huh. Well, someone named Pixel Andy did manage to get through 146, but the glitch worsened with practically invisible, almost pitch black blocks. So between the end of 2022 and 2023, the climb was just a mere two levels. We only got to like 146, 147, 148. Finally, now in 2024, someone named Blue Scooty has cleared that fabled final level, 
crashed Tetris. It is over. It took three decades, but it is done, my friends. So when you get to that level, like what happens? The whole screen just goes black or it's like it freezes? Yeah, it just stops playing and you don't lose. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little anticlimactic if you think about it. It says, I'm tired. Why are you making me do this? You've had enough, kid. Go touch some grass. Exactly. That's the <laughs> Which, touch Which, incidentally, grass is what one of the local news anchors who was interviewing the kid basically implied that the kid needed to touch grass. But what was not included in this article, but in other articles covering the story, the kid's father passed away fairly recently, which was one of the reasons he started playing Tetris oh, so wow. obsessively. Mm-hmm. In part because it does have, like, there are reports that show if you have had a traumatic experience, playing yeah. Tetris immediately after can help you process it. So kind of tone deaf on that anchor, but I'm sure she's getting all the impressions on Twitter. Oh, yeah. I'm sure at this point <laughs> she's getting death threats out the wazoo. Like, you can't insult a kid who beat a video game record and not expect the community to come after you. Yeah. Gamergate, anyone? Yeah. Like, they're just waiting for a target. Come on. (laughs) All right. Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from TheGuardian.com. It's titled Shock of the Old, 10 Painful and Poisonous Beauty Treatments. Ooh. Yeah. And this article uh, was written by Emma Beddington, which I mentioned because it has a lot of character in it, including some first person commentary. So let's start (laughs) there. I know we are supposed to be rejecting everything we stood for last year, sloughing off our desiccated, used-up 2023 selves to emerge sparkling fresh, dewy, and morally superior, but, I don't know, seasonal self-loathing seems so vigorous. If if you're anything like me, and I pray you aren't, you feel listless, lumpen, and broke, and plus, have you looked outside? So... Rather than tormenting ourselves with New Year, New You flannel, let's take a horrified, judgmental look at some New Year, bad old them pictures. And uh, (laughs) this article does have tons of pictures, which were selected by Sarah Gilbert. It's quite a fascinating scroll through. So before today's vampire facials and snail mucus moisturizers, both of those are linked in the article. (laughs) What? uh, There were arsenic (laughs) complexion wafers promising a deliciously clear complexion. Mm. Renaissance women used deadly nightshade to make their eyes look bigger and cat poo to remove hair. Oh, I'm sure that would do the trick. Yeah. One Roman remedy for blemishes involved grinding up the intestines of a small land crocodile, which feeds only on the most fragrant flowers, which does sound like something you might now find for sale on Goop. Yeah. (laughs) But have we bought into an inaccurate cliche? The idea that in the past, women ignorantly or recklessly used deadly poisons to serve their own vanity is a, quote, misogynistic trope that has circulated since classical times, according to art history professor Jill Burke, who wrote that in her book, How to Be a Renaissance Woman. Burke describes a 16th century poisoning ring in Rome where women used aqua tofana, a concoction including ground arsenic and lead disguised as skincare products, to slowly poison their violent or merely drunk and feckless husbands. Ah. (laughs) And it seems there are at least 46, though some speculated as many as 600, so very industrious of them. So even when the objective wasn't murder, women throughout history may have known exactly what they were doing. Beauty conferred power, status, and control in a world where women had precious little of any of those things. And is it really that different from a leech cleanse or injecting a deadly toxin into your forehead? Let's find out. Yeah. (laughs) Like the deadly toxin in your forehead I've at least heard of. These others, I'm like, are people doing this? This is horrendous. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
So Roman plucking and manicuring tools. The Romans were heavy into depilation, the men for sporting performance and the women because of patriarchy. <laughs> Ovid wrote, no rankness of the wild goat under your armpits, no legs bristling with harsh hair, exclamation mark. <laughs> Which was apparently funny. Uh, suppose you had to be there. <laughs> he wasn't alone among Roman writers. They are all writing about how you will need to keep on top of the body hair. And you know, gosh, no man is going to be interested in you if you've got armpit hair according to Cameron Moffat of English Heritage. And this is amply evidenced at Roxeter Roman City in Shropshire, which has found a strikingly large number of tweezers used in its bathing complex by professional pluckers. Now, when we say tweezers and plucking and manicuring tools, we're talking about big stone or iron things looped onto a rod that is like this entire thing is welded. And I mean, honestly, they're not that unreasonable if it's the best you had back then. Sure. Uh, But we're starting light, I promise. Oh, wow. So (laughs) now we're going to talk about Elizabeth I, circa 1588. And the question is, did she really cover her face in lead? And possibly lead-based Venetian ceruse was a contemporary cosmetic, but there is no evidence she used it. Actually, Mm -hmm. much Renaissance goo, the truly excellent name of a collaborative research project between Burke and Professor Wilson Poon, a soft matter scientist, wasn't half bad. The team have recreated and tested historical unguents and found that they are pretty good, including a face cream full of sheep's fat, vitamin E, and antioxidant. All of these, by the way, have links to more articles and information if you're interested in any of these topics. If you want to put together some sheep's fat and put it on your face, see what happens. (laughs) Right, exactly. So, electric corset, 1890s. As if corsets weren't bad enough, here comes science to make them even worse. Mrs. Whiting, a lifelong sufferer from constipation, was wonderfully better thanks to this electric corset. The seductive small print promises the chest is aided in its healthy development. It cures a weak back, as well as hysteria, (laughs) dyspepsia, rheumatic and organic affections, ladies' ailments, etc. (laughs) And then we move on to Dr. McKenzie's Arsenical Soap, 1897. In the 1850s, reports on Austrian arsenic eaters emphasized their flawless complexions, kicking off a craze for arsenic-laced beauty products. These wafers, creams, and soaps conferred a desirable tubercular pallor. After all, the fairest skins belong to people in the earliest stage of consumption, as Mrs. S.D. Powers wrote authoritatively in the 1874 beauty bible, The Ugly Girl Papers, <laughs> in which chapter headings include hope for homely people, brief madness, and easier to be magnificent than clean. <laughs> Honestly, facts, sometimes. Let's be frank. Sure. Unfortunately, arsenic wellness products made you pale by destroying your red blood cells, but it's okay. (laughs) This one was guaranteed absolutely harmless. (laughs) Now we move on to the hip-reducing machine from 1899. Here, there's a photo of a woman in a contraption that kind of looks like one of those Bowflex things, except if you could step into the middle of it. And then there's a series of rollers connected to mechanical arms that are just like pushing into this woman's hips while a man is standing off to the right and just staring off into the distance somewhere off off the photo. He's just pondering the uh, the beauty of the machine. (laughs) Yeah, he's just around. And apparently this man here is actually, in this photo, is a Philadelphia Jack O'Brien 1905 World Light Heavyweight Boxing Champion. So it's not clear if he's endorsing it or not. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe he's up next for the hip reduction. I'm not sure. It's also very unclear how this machine would possibly reduce anything. I mean, it would push your skin around for a while, but... Just sort of crush you a little bit. That's Yeah, yeah. Just a little recreational crushing. (laughs) 
then we get into Edwardian ladies' beauty regime around 1906. And this is how to repair the season's ravages, a perennial problem. Why not take a light bath in a cupboard, which, quote, may reduce the weight accumulated by incessant dining out. Lie in a bath full of magnets, quote, strengthening and life-giving. Or enjoy an electric massage from a stern lady who looks disgusted with your life choices. (laughs) Plus, if your nose had gone out of fashion, it could be altered to suit any desired pattern. And this is really just a big brochure for some beauty boutique or something like that. Yeah, like a med spa. Exactly. It's kind of like a spa treatment, except, you know, you're using very modern inventions for the time, which are horrifying. (laughs) Even then, I think they would have been a little horrifying. Mm -hmm. And then here we have from the 1920s, a radium perm, which (gasps) there's no information they could find on uh, how radium was supposed to make your hair curl, but it could certainly make it fall out. (laughs) Similarly, there is also radium makeup removal coming back from 1937, the French Thaux Radia range of beauty products were supposed to improve circulation and remove wrinkles, but were also shown conferring the unearthly radiant glow you can see in the poster. They were cunningly promoted with expertise from a doctor called Alfred Curry, though he has no relation of Pierre and Marie Curry, who apparently considered legal action against the company. Ah. And I mean, the poster is quite haunting. Like, it's a woman's face that is lit from beneath and her neck is coming out of a cloud of smog or something. Meanwhile, <laughs> a little mushroom cloud. <laughs> yeah, like it, it's literally just a floating cloud. She has no shoulders, no rest of her body. And then there's three bottles of the Thoradia gel, it seems, ominously dripping down the left side of the poster. I mean, this this poster is terrifying, quite frankly. I'm like, thinking of the Sherwin-Williams logo, yeah. like Cover the Earth in Paint, where you're like, that is a villain's logo, right? Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. Advertising has come a long way, even if beauty <laughs> regiments haven't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Next up, we have a video from the YouTube channel Fern called How Kim Jong-un Travels. Oh. And the answer actually kind of surprised me because the supreme leader of North Korea, it turns out, almost never flies in a plane. He does occasionally. And in 2015, the country actually put out a substantial propaganda push claiming that Kim himself has a pilot's license, even though experts who watched the flying video said it's really obvious that the co-pilot is doing all the actual flying. (laughs) But most of the time, when Kim needs to travel outside the capital city of Pyongyang, he takes a train specifically his own personal train called the Taiyango. And partly this is about tradition, because his father, Kim Jong-il, and grandfather, Kim Il-sung, both took trains as well, possibly reinforced by the rumor that Kim Jong-il was afraid of air travel. But a big part of it is also about image, because as a socialist leader, he wants to always appear to be a man of the people, right? And the video actually takes an interesting little detour into the history of politicians on trains as a symbol which, of course, we don't have to look too far for in our own country. President Biden has a whole mythos built up about how he took the train from Delaware every day when he was a senator and has even been nicknamed Amtrak Joe in some news pieces. (laughs) Nowadays, of course, he travels on Air Force One. And not surprisingly, Kim Jong-un's train is pretty equivalent to that in terms of both safety and luxury. So the train itself is nicknamed the Moving Fortress, and it never travels alone. It's escorted by two separate military trains, with the one in front checking the tracks for explosives and ambushes, 
and the one in back being filled with a large contingency of armed guards ready to jump out and fight if need be. Dang. There is also a helicopter that follows the train everywhere it goes within the country's borders, and depending on the route of travel, all the nearby airports along the path are staffed up with extra cargo planes and soldiers. But inside North Korean territory isn't really where the danger is. So to prevent assassination attempts when Kim's train crosses the border into China or Russia, the windows are all bulletproof and the walls and bottom of the train are reinforced to withstand explosions. Multiple compartments along the length of the train carry heavy weaponry in their roofs, which can slide open to reveal anti-aircraft missiles, anti-tank missiles, and two fifty caliber machine guns. Sheesh. And if all else fails, there is a second helicopter inside one of the train cars that can emerge <laughs> upward and allow Kim to flee the scene. It's like a whole Michael Bay production. It is. <laughs> and the video, by the way, is like fully 3D rendered because they don't really have a lot of photos of any of this. So you get to see like the helicopter come out in action and there's like this model of what Kim <laughs> looks like, sort of. Like it's it's very entertaining. <laughs> So once Kim reaches his destination, there are two armored limousines that can drive directly out of the train and take him to whatever palace or diplomatic location he needs to get to. But all of these things make the train very heavy. So it travels at a maximum speed of less than 40 miles per hour. <laughs> and sometimes even slower due to the poor condition of the train tracks on the North Korean side of the border. Wow. So when the Taiyango passes, for example, through a local train station, the power is cut to all the neighboring tracks. But they do try to stick to the 20 railway stations that were built exclusively for the Supreme Leader's travel around the country. And while it's harder to enforce, they also try to keep activity away from the train in Russian or Chinese territory by telling the residents of any small towns they pass through that it would be in their best interests <laughs> if they turned off their lights and stayed indoors when his train is passing through. Hmm. But it's not all defense. There is luxury as well, especially because traveling so slowly means that trips can last days or sometimes even weeks. There is a fully functional office equipped with a laptop, TV screen, satellite phone, and weirdly a fax machine, which yeah. might still be accurate or might be an out-of-date piece of information because the only reason we know any of this is because in 2001, a Russian official named Konstantin Polakovsky accompanied Kim's predecessor, Kim Jong-il, on a nearly month-long journey from Pyongyang all the way to Moscow. Afterward, he published a book about the experience, much to the chagrin of both the North Korean and the <laughs> Russian governments. Oops. No idea if he's still alive, but... <laughs> Other details he described included a reception room with green and hot pink sofas, oh. white walls and shiny wooden floors throughout, turquoise curtains, flower-shaped lamps, and zebra-patterned fabric seats. So really tacky is the, yeah, uh, the vibe. Real, real tasteful stuff. In the restaurant car, there are delicacies from Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Russian, and French cuisine, and numerous singers to personally serenade Kim if he wants a little entertainment. <laughs> but of course, your average North Korean is not supposed to see the inside, only the outside, which again is meant to convey the humble conveyance of the man who cares so much about them, the train is such an iconic part of the Supreme Leader's image that at the Kumujin Palace, where the remains of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il are laid to rest, there are, right next to their remains, life-size replicas of each man's personal train carriage. Oh, oh, there is wow. also said to be a painting of Kim Jong-il proudly standing next to his train and a sort of interactive map with small lights showing the various journeys that each man took during his reign. Hmm. 
perhaps you're wondering, as I was, if anyone had ever tried to infiltrate one of these massively beefed up trains. <laughs> and the answer is maybe. In 2004, Kim Jong-il's train passed through the Yongchang station near the border with China. A few hours later, there was a massive explosion that killed about 160 people and injured 1,300 more. Wow. The official explanation was that a train car carrying flammable materials had parked beneath low-hanging power lines and the contact between the live wires and the metal car heated it to explosive temperatures. But there was, of course, speculation that it was a mistimed assassination attempt. How you'd mistime it that badly, I'm not really sure, because, again, it was several hours after Kim had already left. But after that incident, the train's security was reportedly boosted to something presumably even higher than what we've already described, since that information comes from 2001. The video also notes that in recent years, Kim has been traveling by train to Russia more often because North Korea is pretty much the only ally that Russia has left ever since it started waging war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. On a recent trip to Vostochny Kosmodroma, for example, Putin gave Kim a full tour of the Russian spaceport, aircraft factory, and the Pacific fleet, after which it says they enjoyed vodka, a ballet performance, and a trained walrus show. <laughs> <laughs> And there is actually wow. video of that because now we're in the era of like, oh, this was publicity that they were trying to put out. So you can see the walrus do some tricks. It's pretty cute. Yeah. <laughs> in return, according to American intelligence, North Korea has delivered already over 1,000 containers of ammunition and military equipment. And they expect that Russia will pay them back with scientific advances to their own rocketry programs. Hmm. And then finally, they tie it all back with the fact that Putin has recently accepted an invitation to visit Pyongyang himself. And when he does, because air travel all around Ukraine is not super safe right now, he will most likely use what news reports are dubbing Putin's own ghost train. Mm. So, yeah, it's pretty interesting. There's definitely like they talk a lot about that of like world leaders being on a train is somehow like a really powerful image. And they have this quick montage of all these other world leaders on trains. I feel like that is writing on social and historical currency that has been massively devalued by younger generations. Mm -hmm. But maybe we have to rebrand it, right? Like we've got the influencer cart, where if you do have to live stream the whole thing here, th this card is for you guys. Leave everybody else alone, <laughs> right? Next link. Next link. All right. From the Atlantic, we are doing a quick look on a very expensive emoji. Mm. Huh. So forgive me. I don't speak fluent emoji, but I will do my best because this article is littered with them. So specifically, we are going to talk about the side eye moon emoji. If you know what that <laughs> looks like, great. But otherwise, it's like a moon face. The eyes are looking to the side. It's not really smiling. It's just kind of meh. But a court in Washington, D.C. has been stuck with this question. What is that emoji supposed to represent? Because <laughs> here is the context. In the summer of 2022, Ryan Cohen, a major investor in Bed Bath & Beyond, also the GameStop guy, responded to a tweet about Bed Bath & Beyond with this side-eyed moon emoji. Now, later that month, Cohen, who had been known as a meme king for his starring role in the GameStop craze, he disclosed that his stake in the company had grown to nearly 12%. And as a result, stock price shot up. That huh. week, he sold all his shares and walked away with a cool 60 million windfall. Now, shareholders are suing him for securities fraud, claiming that Cohen misled investors by using the emoji the way meme stock types sometimes do to suggest that the stock was going to the moon. Wow. So now we've got a class action lawsuit with big money on the line, and it has come to legal arguments like this. <clears throat> 
There is no way to establish objectively the truth or falsity of a tiny lunar cartoon. <laughs> that's what Cohen's lawyers wrote in an attempt to get the emoji claim dismissed. That argument was denied, and the court held that emojis may be actionable. <laughs> so, <laughs> God. Whew, yeah, the humble emoji and its older cousin, the emoticon, they're everywhere now, including the corporate world, and especially in tech. Let's see, last month when OpenAI briefly ousted Sam Altman and replaced him with an interim CEO, the company's employees reportedly responded with a vulgar emoji on Slack, right? You see that sometimes. There's like a chosen emoji to like distill the vibe and it gets spammed everywhere when things happen. Or wow. maybe let's turn our attention to FTX, that failed cryptocurrency exchange once run by Sam Bankman-Fried. Apparently, they used emoticons and emojis to approve million-dollar expense reports, and it was held up during bankruptcy proceedings as a damning example of its poor corporate controls. And in February, a judge allowed a lawsuit to move forward, alleging that an NFT company called Dapper Labs was illegally promoting unregistered securities on Twitter because the rocket ship emoji, stock chart emoji, and money bags emoji objectively mean one thing, especially when they're all put together. Yeah. So even though these kind of started out as like a way to flirt over text or express on social media, you know, some ineffable or more vague feelings. Emojis have now worked their way down the adoption curve. A 2022 survey from Adobe showed that 78% of Gen Z and millennial respondents say they have used emoji in professional settings, as did more than oh. half of boomer respondents. But usage of emoji, according to some other researchers, can detract from how credible or trustworthy conversants seem, right? Mm -hmm. For an example, when Twitter got taken over by Elon Musk, all press inquiries were responded to by a single emoji. Remember what that was? I can guess. I yep. mean, <laughs> swirly poop emoji, of course. Yep. But now, because emoji are flooding office chats and personal texts of all kind, the courts are getting flooded with evidence that includes these emojis and emoticons. In 2023, they appeared in over 200 legal cases in the U.S., and that's wow. up from 25 in 2016. For example, in 2021, a flax farmer responded with a thumbs-up emoji to a contract from a potential buyer. Now, the buyer never received the grains, and so he was like, hey, farmer, you violated the contract. But the farmer claimed, hey, thumbs-up emoji didn't mean I was agreeing to the deal, just that I was acknowledging receipt. Hmm. However, the courts were like, yeah, no dice. The farmer was ordered to pay the equivalent of about $60,000. Wow. But it is that possibility of misinterpretation or plausible deniability that could be part of the appeal of using emoji at work, right? That may be part of why we actually use them. Think about those little water droplets, you know, the little series of three water mm -hmm. droplets that can refer to sweat, can refer to sex. Apparently, it can even refer to meth, which I didn't know until I what? read this article. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> But, you know, maybe I guess it makes your heart rate really high and you get all sweaty. Who knows? But that's the point, right? There's a lot of ambiguity here. And while yeah. it's funny to think about a judge thinking about like a laughing, crying emoji versus a winky emoji and what it means, 
courts are actually well suited to handle this kind of thing because they're already pretty good at evaluating non-textual evidence, right? They look at body language, they look at vocal mm. inflections, but you can expect to see a lot more of these. So choose your emojis wisely. And maybe just use fewer emojis because I personally hate them. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of wish there were some sort of like Wikipedia for emojis. I mean, there probably is online, but I don't trust any of them. It changes so fast. I yeah. mean, who knew the little droplets meant meth. That's insane to me. Maybe you need to find more friends with meth who can elucidate this for you, Jen. I don't know. Or maybe I like, you know, said, oh man, I went for a run and got really sweaty and people are like, you're a meth dealer and now I'm in prison. (laughs) Like, I don't know. You nymphomaniac, get offline. Yeah, I mean, a picture is worth a thousand words, but which words? That's right. And how many thousands depending on how you used it, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right, next link. Next link. This article comes to us from newatlas.com, and it's titled, Wound Healing Affected by Perception of Time That's Past. Whoa. Oh. What? So, for the first time, scientists have been able to establish that our perception of the passing of time can independently influence how a wound will heal. Through at-home self-reporting and controlled laboratory sessions, Harvard University researchers found that the skin inflammation left by a suction cup used in cupping therapy was noticeably diminished for people who perceived more time had passed since the wound was inflicted, even though the time period remained constant across all groups. Wild. The researchers recruited 33 participants aged between 18 and 50, each undergoing a multifaceted experiment. First, all participants applied the suction cup to a specific spot on their non-dominant arm and followed precise instructions regarding suction time and treatment. Hmm. They were then required to take photos of the mark left by the cup immediately, complete a survey, snap another picture 30 minutes later, then answer some more questions. They were required to do this each day for a week leading up to the lab sessions. In the lab, each participant underwent three sessions split into experimental conditions. Slow time, 14 minutes, normal time, 28 minutes, and fast time, 56 minutes. While the sessions were all 28 minutes long, counters were altered so the perception of time passing was warped. They had no watches, phones, or clocks in the lab, but were provided with a counter on a tablet that would light up green every four minutes for one minute in order for a healing survey to be completed. Hmm. While waiting for the counter to light up green, participants were required to play Tetris. Which, <laughs> hey! Right, yeah. <laughs> While the normal time session acted as the control, in slow time, the counter lit up green every two minutes. In fast hmm. time, it was every eight minutes. Hmm. Researchers also took photos of the cupping wound at different intervals, much like participants had been required to do at home. What the researchers found was that only five of the finishing 32 participants had a mean healing rate of eight or above when they perceived the session to have lasted 14 minutes. More than a third of participants had almost completely healed by the end of the time period when they believed the session had lasted 56 minutes, more than double the percentage of those who experienced the same healing by the end of what they thought was a 14-minute session. That's crazy. Wow. The researchers wrote, The language of mind-body unity does not undermine the validity of biomedical models that emphasize external factors and lower-level processes. It simply insists on the importance of psychological factors in all aspects of health and well-being. The team is now researching ways to better understand the underlying mechanisms of these initial findings, while the current study provides a fascinating starting point to unravel the complexities of our mind-body biology. So if I'm injured, I need to put a fast clock in front of me so that I can heal faster because I think more time has passed. I think that's the idea. Yeah. Okay. It also makes me wonder if the participants were told the time it takes to heal from that sort of wound were actually shorter or faster. Mm -hmm if that would also affect it, if they use constant time. 
But I guess that would be a type of placebo. But I mean, it's really wild that this works at all for time and healing, right? Because, I mean, they said all that stuff qualifying it in the paragraph the researchers wrote, but also it sounds like magic. (laughs) Right. It's mind over matter, but on a sort of like almost peripheral level, right? Like you're not having to like focus or think about it. It's almost like an awareness that registers at some subconscious level and your body just sorts it out. That's amazing. Well, but it could also be that your body's entire speed is adjusting itself. So like you're also aging more rapidly. Mm-hmm. Like if you do this constantly, you die sooner because your body's like, I burned myself out and now I'm done. Oh man. So like all the years of growing up when my mom was like, five minutes, the bus is going to come in five minutes, but I really had 30 minutes. It actually uh-huh. just prematurely aged me. Oh, I can't wait to tell her. <laughs> <laughs> it does feel really ripe for like a magical realism fiction take. Right? Yeah. Or like benevolent gaslighting. <laughs> Yeah, your life is as long as you believe it's going to be. Whoa. Well, next link. Let's hurry up. (laughs) (laughs) Next Next link. link. Well, I have a fun one from the Ted Ed series on the history of poker. Have you guys ever played? Is that something you do? I I had a poker phase for like real money, but I learned to not do that for a while. I can't lie well at all. Yeah, I'm a little weird. My stepdad taught me to play when I was like 10 or 11, including the gambling portion, like (laughs) how to limp in with a small bet when like, like that's not to say I was ever any good, but I like, I knew that a full house beats a flush way before any of my friends did. But so apparently the game originated in New Orleans around 1800. At that time, there were actually two card games that were pretty popular in the saloons. There was a French card game called Poke, P-O-Q-U-E, which was played with a 20-card deck, and an English game called Brag, which used 52 cards. And beyond that, they were actually pretty similar. They both used four suits in the deck, and players in both games were dealt five cards and were generally trying to make the best hand they could, though each game had slightly different rules about what constituted a good hand. But in both games, the main attraction was betting and specifically bluffing to convince others that you had a good hand. And actually, knowing a little bit about poker as I do, this didn't quite match up with what I had understood. So I dug a little deeper to confirm, and it turns out we're both right. Because the reason these two games were so similar is that they both came out of a common ancestor that goes all the way back to the 1500s. That game, known as Primero in Spain, Primera in Italy, and La Prime in France, gave each player three cards, and the only potential hands you could make out of them were a three of a kind, a pair, or a flux, which later morphed into a flush and was, of course, three cards all in the same suit. So by the 1700s, that game had turned into brag in England and poken in Germany, which means to bluff, and then the French poke came out of the German poken. So if you step back and look at the big picture, what actually happened is one game split into many games across the various languages and cultures of Europe, And then two of those cultures crashed back together in America in 1803 when the United States acquired the French-controlled Louisiana as part of the Louisiana Purchase. So now we're back on track with the TED-Ed video, which tells us that Polk and Bragg combined in New Orleans to create a version of Polk that used 52 cards. And the Americans, with their standard inability to pronounce French words, called it Poké, which eventually became poker. Huh. It's also maybe worth noting that all of these games show a striking similarity to a much older Persian game called Asnas. But once you go back that far, you're basically looking more at the invention of a deck of cards, which is separate from the games that might have been played with it. And scholars are pretty sure that the games themselves developed independently later on. Hmm. But as always, the part about the game that everyone liked was the betting. And that's how poker started to take on some of the more modern features we have today. 
in the early versions, you got what you got in your hand and you basically had one round of betting and then everybody showed their cards. So in order to increase the betting opportunities, Americans quickly modified the standard five card hand to allow players to discard some of their cards and get new ones and then bet again based on their new hand. Shortly after that, the game went west to California with the gold rush, where, of course, everyone was throwing around money left and right. And this is where five card stud emerged, where some of your cards were face up and most importantly, were dealt one at a time. So you could have as many as four rounds of betting in each game. The other thing Americans wanted to do was include more people in the game because that also meant bigger pots of money. The problem they ran into was the deck would run out of cards too quickly. So around this same time down in Texas, the game Texas Hold'em emerged, Ah. where the key feature is that everyone is sharing the same face-up cards, so you're not dealing as many cards to each player, and you can therefore fit more people around the table. (laughs) And at this point, the definition of everything gets a little fuzzy, because people around the country are developing their own rules and basically entirely new games, but they're all still considered to be under the umbrella of poker, because what poker really meant was betting and bluffing. So in 1928, Hungarian polymath John von Neumann attempted to explain these two human instincts in mathematical terms, which became the foundation for a whole new branch of mathematics known, of course, as game theory. And that's a term that gets misused and misunderstood a lot, kind of like quantum mechanics. But the fundamental idea was to quantify the decision-making process in any situation where you have rational players who understand the rules. This is notably different from, for example, chaos theory, where some portion of the outcome is assumed to be random, or you perhaps have a player who is behaving irrationally. Like, game theory only works if everybody's smart, basically. (laughs) At any rate, by now, we're in the modern age, where poker has seen a major resurgence outside the casinos of Las Vegas, first due to the World Series of Poker, which started to be televised by CBS Sports in 1973, which was way earlier than I thought. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, through the creation of online poker, where people of all ages and backgrounds can blow their entire paycheck on a single hand. (laughs) And I do have to say, I do not endorse online gambling, but I do personally know someone who makes a solid income playing online poker. But the only reason he can pull it off is he's a massive math nerd and he's very, very good. So, Mm -hmm. like, if you do go online and play, he's the one who will be taking your money. You're not going to (laughs) win. Don't do it. Yeah. I mean, especially online. Like, when I was playing, it was in cash games because they'll do a membership thing. You can actually pay a monthly membership at a club in Texas, and therefore you're now a member. You're not necessarily Mm. gambling. And people who go to play in person are generally not that great, but Mm. they also don't follow game theory, and so you can lose randomly because they do insane things. Mm. And then on the online factor, you're playing with people who play with perfect strategy in math. And like you can actually use something called a HUD, a heads-up display, which shows the stats of how different people play at the table. So if you're not using tools like that, you're at an inherent disadvantage. So like, right. that's why I didn't really stay in it seriously, because I was like, oh, like, yeah, there's no way I have the, the time or focus to actually turn this into a real thing. It's fun to play every now and then. But now I play for like one to two cents stakes with my friends. Smart. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include World's Whitest Insect Spurs Energy-Saving Ceramic Design, A Passenger Drone in China Could Herald Flying Cars, and The Plan to Put Pig Genes in Soybeans for Tastier Fake Meat. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. 
If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.